kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Good morning. Yeah. So how are you this fine week? Oh, it's been a long week. And yeah. uh, glad it's over. So. I hear you. Well, we're here to talk about some music tonight. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, interesting uh, aspects of the whole uh, punk rock reunion phenomenon. Yes, Just we are. about uh, getting over the, the Vegas shtick. When it comes to punk rock, although if punk rock really went Vegas, I don't know that I would mind. I, I might be alone here, but Danzig was to take those misfit songs and put them on stage, and maybe the Circle Jerks were to pull out the Repo Man shtick. That might be interesting. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll get into it. We're going to get into Definitely. Uh, all the ins and outs of uh, the reunions and uh, the breakups, and you know, are our band still relevant after? certain key members leave or you know are, are bands still relevant is there a sound that is is kind of that retains after all the breakups and heartaches and you know you go your way and I go mine we're, we're gonna get into that tonight was that a First, Fleetwood uh, Mac reference well could be but uh anyway I, I guess we should start and say uh, what have you been listening to Eric well tonight I uh I pulled out a couple of Classics from my Bad Day at Work playlist. Uh, the first being The Violators, Summer of 81. Classic. Mm-hmm. Oi. Do you, you know this song? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so good. Just these great washing female vocals about social injustice and rioting. and such a great song. And I know a lot of people out there probably aren't interested or know much about Oi music. It got a bad rap, basically. Uh, the skinheads co-opted it in the mid to late 80s. You go back to Sham 69 and Coxbar and Cockney Rejects and that early stuff, you're going to find a lot of great working class, sing-along, just just great stuff. And if you're a fan of The Clash, definitely check out Coxbar and definitely check out The Violators. Oh, yeah. Stiff, stiff Little Fingers, that, that oh, yeah. whole era. It's funny, too, because, you know, the musical kind of misrepresentation of, 
you know, the skinhead movement and everything. I mean, you know, funnily enough, when, when people mention skinhead music to me, I think of two-tone. Yeah, well, the original skinheads were right, working-class right. Jamaicans would move to England for better-paying blue-collar jobs. Right. right. Period. But that's, that's where I think. Well, I think of the Rude Boys and the Skins and the original stuff, you know yeah, what well, I mean? I grew up... Eventually. I grew up around a lot of sharps who are skinheads against racial prejudice. That was a huge oh, thing in my high school. So there was definitely that that element as well. And they were actually a reaction to the, the Nazi skinheads later down the road. So you had the original Jamaicans, and then the, uh, the punk rockers picked up on it, and then the racists picked up on it, and then there was a backlash. And you had the clash playing rock against racism, and you had the specials coming out against racism. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's just interesting how it, it, it for years it kind of bled over into you know the whole social and cultural uh, phenomena that you know when whenever you told people right off the bat you were listening to skinhead music they're like whoa wait a minute yep. not those guys you know and it's like but I mean I guess in, in one weird way you could say it was the same thing as kind of. You know, back in the 80s when you told people you were listening to heavy metal. Most definitely. Most it's definitely. like, you're going to hell, man. What are you listening to that for? Like, you know, it's yeah, it's well, kind of funny. Speaking of which, the uh, I did listen to a little Iron Maiden today earlier as well, which is also on that that Bad Day at Work playlist, a little Run to right. the Hills and Can I Play with Madness. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, go Maiden ahead. is funny because, you know... As much as, you know, a lot of the old guys get shit, like, like the metal dudes, like, for example, the Scorpions yeah. and Priest and Maiden, you know, they're industries to themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I, I saw Maiden a couple of years back when they played in Korea, mm -hmm. and Bruce Dickinson, I mean, you know, I, I, I love the man, man. The, I much, you know, I totally respect him. He's... With his life, he was gone and gotten a master's degree. He's become a licensed pilot, and I think a couple of years ago, he actually used the the band's plane, which he flies them on, to go and rescue some uh, some British uh, citizens from one of those those uh, African countries that was in the middle of a revolution. On his own dime, he flies in, picks them up, flies them home. And yeah. How many rock stars do that? Not a lot. Right. And it's incredible too. I mean, have you ever seen the documentary, the, the Flight Six Six Six? I have yet to see that, but I would like to. Oh, man, that's amazing, because, I mean, this is what really blows my mind, right? Is that, you know, you get a lot of bands with the tour bus. Yeah. They all roll off the bus. They all roll back on the bus, climb into their bunks, and they're done for the night. Mm -hmm. But here's but here's a dude. He flies their plane yep. on tour. I can only think, awesome. think of one other rock star who's also a pilot. Mm. Dennis Tech. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a he was a uh, Navy flight surgeon, and that's what got him to medical school in Australia. And the rumor is that the character Iceman from Top Gun is loosely based on him because his call sign in the Navy was was Iceman, and the writers of Top Gun were at the base that he was stationed at doing research at that time. Wow, that's weird. That's interesting. But no, it's funny, just um, with, with Bruce Dickinson, how, you know, this guy goes around the world, flies a 747, he 
gets out of the plane, he goes on a stage, he runs around like a maniac mm -hmm. at 50 plus years old, and uh, it's just incredible. And he's got that voice, that, that operatic, yeah. classic, classical opera voice. I mean, he's not right. like, he's not like some, some um, you know... Screamer. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, he's got that range. Yeah. So speaking of voices, the other thing... Uh, I don't know if you've listened to the Dig Me Out podcast, which is a 90s-oriented music podcast that, that Morris actually introduced me to. They're doing an upcoming episode on the band NY Loose. Do you remember them at all? New York Loose. Did they have a female singer? They did, and she had a great voice. Yeah, I, I somewhat, I'm somewhat familiar with them, yeah. So she was uh, also in a band that I quite like called The Famous Monsters, which was her... And Sean Eustel from White Zombie doing right. monster-themed garage rock. So they're okay. going to they're going to do an upcoming episode on My Loose. So I pulled out my copy of Year of the Rat, which is the album they're reviewing, and gave it another spin. I actually saw My Loose open for Reverend Horton Heat at St Andrews Hall in Detroit sometime in the '90s. And while their songs didn't really strike me, they had a certain energy that was much more like late '90s high-energy rock and roll, and they had a definite stage presence that you could not deny. And yes, the lead singer was extremely attractive, but her voice and just her stage presence and the interaction with the crowd was, was you know, you don't remember opening bands a lot of the time, but I remember them. They were, they were solid. And I got to wonder what would have happened if they had been able to continue on with the band. Right. So, so I gave that... Go ahead. A lot of bands in the 90s that went like that, you know, I mean, they, there was, out on the West Coast, there was a band called The Nymphs, mm -hmm. and they, you know, with the female singer in their lower, and uh, same, same type of situation where they had a stage presence, they had, you know, a couple of really good songs, but it was just like, you know, they just kind of got pushed to the wayside, unfortunately, you know, in, you know, in the grunge era where everybody else kind of... Uh, Sopped it all up. Yep. There was a lot. There was, you know, millions of bands out there that were just kind of, you know, uh, set set adrift. You know? Maybe, uh, maybe ahead of their time or behind their time. One of the two. Right, right, for sure, for sure. So, also, uh, really quickly, I, I listened to uh, recently some Simon Stokes and a band called Danny and Dusty, and that's all I oh, must yeah. say about them because those are actually upcoming segments for Love That Album. Okay. So, Simon Stokes, though, all I want to say is that I'm quite familiar with him because uh, biker music. Yeah, and I did not know this, but he did songs for the movie Wanted Dead or Alive, which was an early GGTMC-covered film. Yep. Oh, yeah, so. I, I knew that. And I knew that Simon had actually recorded uh, he'd recorded a couple of biker yeah. tunes for, for other soundtracks. And he's, he's done some stuff recently as well. Well, I, I, I was familiar with him through uh, Anacene. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, the Confederacy of Scum, guys. I, yeah. I do have that Conquer Worm album, which is right. Rance, the guy from Rancid Vat, and I yeah. think the Anti-Scene doing a bunch of Simon Stokes covers. Right, right, right. With so, him. But he, had, but he also worked with them, too. Yeah, he, he did. So if anybody, yeah, yeah. that sounds interesting to anybody, then just a little bit of a, a, little bit of a tease for an upcoming segment. So, uh, speaking of, of older guys with uh, interesting voices, uh, Eric Burton from The Animals, whose uh, recent solo album I've been I've been digging into even more, and it's uh, 
solid. It's so worth checking out. Oh, yeah. You know, I heard the one track, the um, Can't Get It Off Of My Mind. Yeah. And then that's, yeah. I heard that on public radio when I was at work, and I was just like, holy shit, man. Like, it was just so haunting. And that, you know, he's got one of those unmistakable voices that there's no way that, you know, you can try and sing like Eric Burton, but you're not gonna. Yeah, there's only one. You're not gonna come close. There's only one. You know? Yeah, and the instrumentation on the album is great. And, uh, yeah, I just, I just really, really like it. It's got a great rocking, but, but still kind of laid back feel. So, so there's that, and then uh, Driving to Crying, which is the band I've talked about before, and that I just I really do love their uh, newest EP, their their uh, latest in the series of EPs. That uh, this one's oriented towards psychedelic rock. And let me check here, and let me get the title for everyone. And while I'm doing that, I'll just note that I actually did listen to. Um, all right, so this one's called Songs from the Psychedelic Time Clock. Right. And it's 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 what you would expect from from an album called called that. So, uh, and then I gave a spin to um, Doctor Feelgood's Down by the Jetty. Oh, nice! Feeling like a little bit of uh, you know high energy pub rock, just something else we've talked about on the show before. And, well, uh, you know, it's so funny because. You know, the one thing that really strikes me, you, you heard the the story recently about Wilco Johnson. I have not. Well, Wilco Johnson, who was the main guitar player in Dr. Feelgood, and an incredible guitar player in his own right, the influence of, you know, on so many people in England, um, he was diagnosed about a year ago with inoperable brain cancer. Okay. And he basically took it all and said, all right then, we'll hit the road. So he's, he's been an amazing kind of um, real inspiration to so many cancer survivors because he went on and did a world tour. He played Japan, he, he said his goodbyes, he, he, he went around the world and uh, he played as many gigs as he could. And he smiled and he, you know, and, and he really said in an interview um, with the British radio that I, I listened to just a while ago, he said, you know, cancer has been the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's kicked me in the ass and really made me appreciate life and uh, it's really made me get back on the clock and uh, get in there and record and play and do all these things that I was supposed to do when I thought I had a lot of time, but now I realize I don't. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it was just incredible how this guy was so like, yeah, I got cancer. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Freedom's and just it, another word for nothing left to lose. Exactly. And, you know, but, but he went out there and he gave it. And I think I think the, the disease is getting the best of him now because uh, he he can't play anymore. Okay. But, but I think it's just incredible that uh, he went out in a blaze, just went out there and just gave it, you know, regardless of you know his situation. I mean, he, any, anybody else or anyone you know bigger than him in, in terms of fame would have uh, you know been sitting in a hospital bed or would have been sitting in respite somewhere and expecting sympathy from all his fans and all his fellow musicians or they'd have a fundraiser for him or something yeah. and this guy is just like fuck that man I'm just gonna go out and the road you know and, and, and the same guy that did it too in the, in, in the same way was uh, R.L. Burnside yeah because when Burnside he came out of a, of a bypass 
um, and as soon as he came out and you know he got the insurance uh, from his uh, health plan, he went out and bought a new Ford Econoline, and they hit the road, and they, they toured, I think, for about eight months, and then he died shortly after that. It makes me think of Warren Zevon as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Warren, Warren was the same way. It's like, you know, you know when the writing's on the wall, and you know when, you know, uh, the time the time you thought you had is uh, just a figment yep. of your imagination, and, you know, and you got to go in and get it done, and they do. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. So, so the last thing I'm going to mention uh, is I got the new Bad Religion record this week. Now, I've only given it one spin. It's called True North. Uh, I'm kind of a latecomer to Bad Religion. I, I like their stuff in the past, but it's only been the last couple of years that I've really started to embrace, some, especially some of their individual songs that I think really still to this day and throughout their whole career had something to say about especially American society and where it's going. Just very intelligent, energetic, interesting, thoughtful, but enjoyable punk rock. You know, if if you want something that's a little deeper than the Ramones or or the Zeros, something that's that's got a little more to say. Oh, absolutely. You know, what's funny with Bad Religion is I always, um, I mean, I've listened to those guys right back from the beginning mm-hmm. and suffer and the early albums and I always thought it would be it would have been kind of uh, quite astute of them to uh, you know give out a dictionary with every album that they, they put out most definitely <laughs> it, for anyone who really doesn't know or familiar with Bad Religion it's like their their lead songwriter Brett Gerowitz he, he's no dummy and PhD in zoology. Yeah, he's got a a degree in biology, and he's also, you know, a very literate man in his writing. I mean, if you can imagine somebody like Noam Chomsky singing punk rock lyrics, you kind of get the idea. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's pretty much what I've been listening to. So uh, what's been on your uh, iPod turntable, CD player? Beating on the tin right. cans in your kitchen, whatever. Alrighty. Um, I've been going back and digging into the past, uh, as I tend to do. I mean, there, I try to find new music that interests me. I try to find the new artists, you know, mm-hmm. something that I can latch on to, but I find it, it becomes more and more difficult as I go on. And it's not because, you know, I feel like a cantankerous old fuck. It's just uh, this idea that, you know, um, the energy, I mean, it, it's interesting how what we consider to be energy it, it is, is looked completely different by someone else. You know? Yeah. It, it's, it's just like, and when something, you know, I mean, like, there's, a, you know, there's no accounting for taste, but I mean, something that really moves somebody else. You can, you know, you look at it and it would barely lift a finger. Yeah. So I mean, um, that's the kind of issue I have with a lot of modern music now. Is, is a lot of it just doesn't have the grab for me. But I mean, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing too. Yeah. There's a mil- there's a million things out there that I just haven't heard yet. I just have to dig harder and and find more. I mean, like for example, like one of the standbys that I've always recently loved, like one of the newer bands that I really like, is a uh, 
a band called Piss Jeans. I've heard and, the name. I've heard the name. Oh, yeah, they're on Sub Pop now, but they're, they've got that, they're a very tongue-in-cheek band, I mean, hence, you know, with the, the band name, but Piss Jeans are kind of like a, a noisier, uh, fun, going back to the days of like the Jesus Lizard and early no- 90s noise bands and mm-hmm. bands like Flipper and bands, you know, like that kind of abrasive sound. But the lyrics are all about, you know, funny subjects like, you know, taking the bus across town to see a a girl. And it's like, you know, you're making me go across town to see you on the bus. You know, like, like just kind of like these silly nonsensical, you know, like their their songs are great. And I mean, like they're really catchy as hell. And uh, they just have that grab. I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of like. That the first time you heard the Turbo Negro, you know, it's just oh, yeah. that kind of full-on grab. But um, you know, uh, I w- your sure, go ahead. your description of them makes me think of. You ever heard the band Art Brute from the UK? No. Very much a uh, stripped-down, basic. You know, they they were kind of uh, I don't know the the kind of new punk a couple years ago. But you know, championed by the critics, and they had songs that were like "I formed a band" and was like basic stripped down stuff. But they're, you know, in successive albums, they've grown just just enough to have this kind of very fun, you know, um, I don't know. They they had one song on their last album called I forget the title, but it's basically about I can't believe I just discovered the replacements. What a great band they! I mean, those are the kind of lyrics that are there. So, right. so what, you, this, what you're describing makes me think of them. Well, I, I think you'd really dig them. I mean, I'll, I, I'll take I, a look. You know, and uh, they're, I think they're on their third album now. But, um, yeah, Piss Jeans are a blast, and they're, they're really, really fun. The, the second thing I was listening to recently was uh, Standing on the Verge of Getting It On, um, old school Funkadelic. I can never get enough Funkadelic in my... Uh, week they're one of the few bands that really um transcend yes they are and i could i could i could go on and on and on um for hours about you know the virtues of funkadelic and uncle george glenn Mm -hmm. eddie hazel you know i mean of course you know the infamous bootsy collins oh yeah but um no i mean it's crazy how um, when you listen to the early, early, early Funkadelic albums, the first three records, it's amazing how they just paved the path for so much in the future. And like you were talking earlier about those bands that were either before their time or ahead of their time, and yep. Funkadelic were just light years beyond anything that was coming out of the early 70s. I mean, just light years. And, I mean, they paved the path for bands like, obviously, the Red Hot Chili yes. Peppers. Big time. Fishbone. Fishbone. Uh, um, Rage Against the Machine. I mean, the all the whole hip L.A. hip-hop. All of it. I mean... Oh, yeah. There wouldn't have been no N.W.A., none of it. I mean, if it wasn't for Funkadelic, I mean... Even Mike Watt has covered them. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Everybody. Everybody was influenced by Funkadelic. And um, we were talking, you know, off mic about this, but 
an interesting thing is, and, and like again, like I say, I I'm not advocating the use of uh, narcotics or anything in that matter. But um, and again, I we, we've had this discussion yeah. before where I you know I'll, I'll be the first one to come out and say that you know narcotics themselves cannot produce art. No, but but they help. Well, my my take on it has always been that having a few drinks or ingesting whatever. It doesn't make you more creative. What it does is it drops your internal editor. Right. So so instead of, if you already have the talent and you're afraid to express it or you're not sure it's about expressing it, that having that drink or two is going to let you get up and sing at karaoke or whatever. Sure. You know, go sure. up and talk to that girl, that, that internal critic, that, what is it, uh, you know, the superego, is that what it is that it drops? Right. But that's what it does. It doesn't make you more creative. It drops your it drops your guard and allows you to express things that, that your common well, sense is telling you you shouldn't. Well, I think I think it, it, it does. Like, it depends on what it is. Like, for example, let me elaborate. Um, yeah, so as I was saying, like, I think in Detroit in the 60s, you know, and I'm not trying to generalize here be prejudiced in any way whatsoever but um, I think that for a lot they felt that you know for the African American community in Detroit at that time that heroin was the drug of choice heroin or marijuana but what happened surprisingly enough was that you know the African American community started getting introduced to LSD and uh, this this isn't your run-of-the-mill LSD. This was the blow-your-head-off-and-see-flying-unicorns-coming-out-of-the-spaceship LSD. Yeah. And, you know, and this is where George Clinton and the parliaments, the early stuff, um, you can see, still see footage on YouTube of, you know, the, the beginnings, the bubblings of uh, Funkadelic with the parliaments. But you can see, you know, George dabbling because, I mean, like, you know, you see these guys getting on stage and one guy's wearing a Ku Klux Klan robe and the other guy's <laughs> wearing a Royal Canadian mounted uniform with, you know, with the hat and, yep. you know, George has got a little mini mohawk before anybody. He's wearing an old pair of one-piece pair of suspenders and he's up there giving it, you know. But this this was the moment when, when LSD and George Clinton started to cross paths. And, like, you were talking about, you know, breaking down the inhibitions and things like that. Um, yep. I think this this totally opened up so many avenues for for George and for the band. I mean, in terms of just being you know the cosmic awareness and just you know thinking beyond not just beyond the box but beyond the universe. You know, I mean, they they created their own their own universe, their own system. You know, they created their own characters, funkadelic characters. I mean, you know. Uh, Sure knows, you know, and the whole there's a whole mythology that goes along with Funkadelic, mm -hmm. and it all came from the beginning. And and like I'm saying, I, I really believe that a large part of that was the fact that black folks started doing LSD. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could pick one track off this album for for people to uh, sample, what would it be? Oh, uh, and I don't know. I mean, you know, Alice in My Fantasies, you know. It's just the incredible guitar work on it is just phenomenal. I mean, you know, the later later funkadelic was more 
funk and disco end of things. Yeah. But the early the early funkadelic was more about the sonic funk, the the the, the real musicianship of mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you know, there were there was guys like you know there was Kid Funkadelic who came after Eddie Hazel. You know, you got guys like Bernie Worrell. I mean, you know, it, it, it's just it's just phenomenal, man. But I mean, like the first first couple of Funkadelic records, I can't recommend highly enough. You know, yeah. I really, I really just you know, and, and I think that to me, and I mean, it, it, I really hate to make this sound like a pretentious statement, but it's like you know, if if you can't get into the early Funkadelic, you don't have a pulse. You you know it's just it's just one of those things that you know you, it's almost impossible to feel yeah you know and, and and I mean I mean Clinton had one of the greatest quotes ever you know free your mind and your ass will follow most definitely it's right up there I, I love that you know I love the idea of just you know the the letting go you know I mean I think this is this is what was weird about you know, Funkadelic 2 at the time was that um, they were too black for white folks. Yeah. And they were too weird for black folks. They, they, they were like a lot of great bands like uh, like Motorhead. Too punk for metal and too metal for punk. Right. But, but what was amazing was that they were bridge builders. Yes. And, you know, and, and they they basically said, look, you know, we, we don't have the time or inclination to to deal with this segregation shit. Mm-hmm. We, we, we just basically do what we do and you follow us or you don't, you know, and, that, exactly. and that's it, you know. And, and, and I mean, that's what really got me hooked about, you know, early funk. I mean, like, for example, you know. Uh, Isley Brothers, mm-hmm. and, you know, Sly and the Family Stone, of course, you know, I mean, Baby Huey, all this stuff. I mean, when I when I listened to it initially, a lot of people were like, well, why are you listening to that music? And I'm like, what do you mean, that music? Like, what is that, you know? And, and, and everyone's just like, well, hey, man, like, you know, it's kind of like, you don't resemble that. It's just kind of like, like it's kind of this... This thing where people were surprised that I could enjoy this, you know. Yeah. And, and because it was, it was kind of considered "quote unquote" exotic, right? And I'm like, what's so goddamn exotic about it? It's it's great music, you know. It's out of their and, comfort zone. That's what's exotic about it. Right, right. And I think it was the same way that punk fell on fell onto the same lines, where for you know a lot of young kids like you and I growing up in you know suburban areas and we would throw on our punk rock records and it was something that was completely alien to our parents and to a lot of other people and they were just like you know how can you do you know do you understand the why are you you know and it was just this thing where some just don't get it you know yeah well it was what's this noise right right all right um the next thing i've been listening to is um we talked about this beforehand too was um, the new stooges record yes uh, have you uh, had a chance to spin it i have not listened to the whole thing but i have sampled it more yeah. than uh than last time we uh, we chatted about it and i have to say that the, the samples i'm hearing are growing on me they're 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 more a combination of that 
Iggy and the Stooges circa 73 and what Iggy was doing with Bowie. I mean, I, I, I hear a lot more of him not needing to, I don't know, I don't want to say scream and shout for that. Was, I don't think that was ever his deal, but of being a little more comfortable with crooning or a little more mid-tempo, you know, whereas, uh, I don't know, because on, on the other hand, you know, the Iggy and the Stooges stuff had the, the, the whole catalog had that, that classic balance of the, you know, search and destroy and give me danger. And I feel like this new record, while maybe it's not up to that level, but nothing's going to be, that it's it's in the ballpark. Right. Does that make sense? Right. Well, it, it's, it's Stooges for 2013. I mean, you know, you've got yeah. to really consider that, too. And, and again, you know, I've said this before, but... Um, the first three records, you you can't get any any better than that, man. Like that's oh, yeah. a track that right there, you know. And um, you know you have the self-titled you have Fun House, and then you have Raw Power. I mean, anything after that is just a, a mood point. You know? Yeah. And uh, and it's so funny because it's it's kind of like sex, where you know mo- most people. You know, they have foreplay and then they have an orgasm. Whereas with the Stooges, they had their orgasm and everything else is foreplay. You know? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, it's, it's a repeatable. It's just, yeah, they they came right out and just bang. You know, like they they're like, we're, you know, we're not here to fool around. We're we're here to play. And you know, they and they did. You know, yeah. and the first three albums were so so fantastic, and everything afterwards was like, uh, you know, yeah. So. Let me ask you, uh, on this new record, are there any of the songs in particular? Because like I said, I just sampled it, and I'm enjoying it enough that I definitely want to get my hands on the copy. But are there any songs that are jumping out to you? Um, I like Burn. Okay. I really do. And I, I really I really do. And I, and I, and I also like uh, I, I Got a Job. You know, and I think you can relate to that. Yeah. As, as we all can. But... Um, no, I think I think what's what's really interesting with the new album is the fact that you know Steve McKay, their sax player, he's actually an integral part of the whole record, mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of like the past recordings where he played on one or two tracks. He he's right through the whole album on this. You know, like there's just you know he he he, he really adds an, an element to this whole proceedings, and I think it's just fantastic. And, you know, Iggy and Williamson, how can you go wrong, man? I mean, yeah. it's like chocolate and peanut butter. It's like shit. Like, you can't, you know, taking me back to Kill City. And, and you know, that that whole thing, I mean, Williamson, again, you know, him, just the fact that, you know, he had a pretty high-paying corporate job. You yeah. Know? He had a huge, like, I mean, he was making a ton of, ton of cake. And he just said, nah, I'm going to step away from that. I'm going to go back to where I came from, you know. And so he plugged in, and now he's back with the Stooges. And it's just phenomenal. His guitar playing is so, um, such a signature. It's yeah. such a signature. Like, you you know, you can try to play like that. But again, you're not going to play that, you know. The, the Stooges are one of a handful of bands that, that had a change in membership that allowed them to have... Uh, First, it was Ron Ashton playing off of Iggy, and then it was James Williamson playing off of Iggy in those lead roles. And with Ron Ashton gone, 
that James Williamson could come back and step back into that role. There's not a lot of bands that have had that kind of iconic uh, interplay. I, mean, you, you talk, I, don't, I can't even think of another band that, that had two, two uh, great personalities bouncing off the basically the front man. Right. Well, you know, it, it's very interesting because, I mean, I, I got lucky enough to see them play with Ronnie. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, the, the one thing that really kind of, you know, ties them together is that they were both, Ron was very laid back in his playing. Like yeah. He was a monster. And, you know, and then Williamson's the same way. He's, he's, he's not a flashy guy. And he doesn't have to be. He just kind of lets lets the music do the talking, you know. Well, you, you know, speak, speaking of, of the Stooges, I just thought of the other band I can think of that had that frontman and uh, guitar player interplay and were able to to evolve by changing the players, and that's The Damned. First you had okay. Brian James, and then you had uh, Captain Sensible. Right, right. And sure, sure. Just like the Stooges, Captain Sensible. Well, Captain Sensible started out as the bass player, and then he moved to guitar, whereas Ron started off as the guitar player, and then he moved to bass for raw power. Right. And obviously, if you know anything about the Dam, they were highly influenced by the Stooges, to the point when I saw the Dam play in Detroit, Captain Sensible said, hey, are the Ashtons out there? Because I know, because he had worked with Ron. Yeah. That's funny. Well, the funny thing that you say that they were influenced by the Stooges... You know, my reply is, uh, who was? <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, but 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 influenced to the point where they covered them on their first record. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's so funny because, you know, this whole argument about um, the idea of the origins of punk and where punk came from, whether it was England or whether it was yep. the United States. I mean, I have to I have to lean towards the United States, you know, because I mean, you can't you can't tell me that you know the Sex Pistols and everybody else didn't hear the Stooges, man. You can't tell me that. Oh yeah, you know, it's not it's not you know it's just not even an issue. I mean, and and then you know you hear like you know Jonathan Richmond, you know the Modern Lovers. I mean, like when the Pistols did Roadrunner. I mean, you knew they were listening to American music. You definitely knew. I mean, well, there, there's no ways about it. Famously, the, the last Sex Pistols show at Wonderland in San Francisco, they ended by covering the Stooges. They were playing right. no fun. There you go. That's exactly it. That's what I'm saying. It's just, you know, their, their influence is felt far and wide. And, you know, the interesting thing about the new record, and I was saying this to you before, was... Um, there's no way, and they knew this right from the beginning, there's no way that they were even going to be able to come close to matching, yeah. you know, the the big three right from the get-go. And, and they would have been foolish to try. And, and I think at, at this time now in their, you know, in their lives, you know, with their age and everything, they're, they don't have to impress anybody. I mean, they've done it. I mean, you know, if you don't know who the Stooges are by now, you never will. I mean... <laughs> Definitely. You know, um, and I, and I think a lot of people are kind of bragging on the fact that the the lyrics of the album seem so stupid and they seem so you know goofy and you know tongue in cheek. Yeah. But I think I, I think it's it's Iggy just saying you know like every everything's stupid now. Dude, this is you know, ridiculous. 
yeah, this is ridiculous. Like, everything's just dumb now. Like, you know, like, you want dumb? I'll give it to you. Okay. Well, you know. What, what's striking me as you talk is that the, the, uh, <laughs> some of the artists I talked about earlier, Eric Burden, Driving and Crying, Bad Religion, these are all people that have been around for a long time and they've probably hit their commercial and artistic peak. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. But like the Stooges, it's all a matter of are they carrying on the legacy and are they embarrassing themselves? Now, from what I've heard of the new Stooges record, they're not embarrassing themselves. No, not at all. And I mean, how how many sixty five year olds or whatever you know mm-hmm. that you, you know can get away with you know running shirtless on stage, and jumping up and yep. down like you know like a shaved ape and just going nuts? I mean, now it's so funny because when uh, the Stooges played in Massey Hall in two thousand and eight in Toronto. I was showing my father footage of this a couple of days later, and um, I said to him, uh, you see that guy over there? And he says, well, you mean that guy running around and jumping off the stage and going insane? I says, yeah. I said, he's 65. My old man looks at me and he says, get the hell out of here. I'm 65. <laughs> yep. Like, he just couldn't believe that Iggy, Iggy was his age. You know, like, my dad was just floored. He's just like, but, he, but he's, and I'm like, yeah. But he's jumping, I'm like, yeah. You know, but, but, he, but he's singing, yeah. Like, yep. He's doing it, you know. And and it's just, he's an anomaly. He's just a real, he's the real deal, and he's an anomaly. I mean, you know. But there's nobody else who can get away with being Iggy Pop except Iggy Pop. It's just the way it is. Yep. And all the imitators... And, and I, I'm saying right now that I'm a fan of the people I'm going to name. Stiff Baders, rest in peace. Yeah. Bucks Interior, rest in peace. They were definitely taking a page from Iggy, but they evolved into their own thing. Right. And, sure. and Iggy is Iggy, and he, he has evolved along his own path. And if you don't evolve away from being an <laughs> Iggy clone, you're going to fade away. Well, I could even, you could even argue, I mean, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but you can even argue that I'd say someone like Alice Cooper was even influenced by Iggy. Oh, most definitely. And Alice has actually been very upfront about how he was inspired by the Stooges, by the MC5, by yeah. Funk Railroad, by all of those bands from that era of Southeast Michigan rock and roll, that Ann Arbor where I am, Detroit, and then Flint to the north of us. That triangle had the, this high-energy, proto-punk, soul, rock, country, uh, just this all these influences, you know, uh, Sun Ra, Free Jazz, Funkadelic, all of that stuff coming together at that point in time and influencing each of those. They influenced each other and were influenced by each other. Right. Well, you know, I think this is an interesting thing, too, and I don't mean to run off on a tangent here, but... I think that there was one one key factor of an historical incident that occurred in Detroit mm-hmm. that really, to me, was kind of, you know, um, the forge of, of a lot of these things. And to me, that was the Detroit riots. Yeah, oh, definitely. Motor City burning. The, yep, I think the Detroit riots, to me, were the kind of uh, the impetus for you know the beginnings of things like like I say like the MC5, the Stooges, um, Funkadelic, all these things. I mean, it was like that was the you know the absolute breakdown, the descent. They were watching. Not- 
yeah, they were watching not only that, but but I think you can't under, understate the the effect of Vietnam on that generation as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, they Iggy was of age to go, man. They, I think most of them were. I mean, right, right, sure, sure. And there were, you know, and I mean, you know, this was this was funny how today you can't even imagine, you know, how. Um, I mean, like for example, uh, there was a guy when. Uh, the second Iraqi war broke out, you know, when they went after Saddam, I, mm-hmm. I remember an American soldier refusing to go, and he was trying to get asylum up in Canada, mm-hmm. and they they bounced him back, and you know, he wound up in a federal military prison yeah. somewhere. And whereas, you know, in '69, you know, in '70, you had guys out in the street burning their draft cards. Yep. I mean, you had, you had, you know, people just totally turning their back on Vietnam and saying, you know, look, you know, like, we don't want to go over there and come home in a body bag. I mean, you know, that's just it. And, I mean, there was a recent interview with Iggy where, where he, he even said, hey, man, you know, like, you look at us as survivors, but, you know, it's like we survived not having to go to Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So very, very interesting. Um, the third thing uh, I've been listening to recently is uh, we were talking earlier about uh, a lot of the bands that come out of the 90s, the 80s, and 90s, and how a lot of them were unfortunately kind of cast to the wayside or they were kind of uh, overlooked. And to me, one of my favorites that was criminally overlooked was a band um, from Montana that was called Steel Pool Bathtub. I know the name. So, yeah, like, um, I was going to say the third band that I've been listening to recently is uh, a band called Steel Pool Bathtub. And they were generally, they were out of Bozeman, Montana, but they eventually uh, wound up being based in uh, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Now, Steel Pool was, they were one of, like, an amazing uh one of these amazing bands that a lot of people never really had a chance to hear and initially their sound could have been really passed off as, as just noise but it was so much more than that is you know they 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 were a three piece and what they did was they interestingly enough used uh, samples where you know they would use for example like uh, B movie soundtrack samples or they okay. would use a uh, science fiction uh, quotes and this was all before computers I mean they, they were recording with cassette decks they were using cassette decks live on stage for sampling and all kinds of different things but um, they toured around the same time as bands like Sonic Youth okay. and Puppets and you know Firehose and, and they were just amazing in the sense of creating their own their own kind of bubble like snow globe of sound and, you know, initially, the, their earlier albums, like, you know, Lurch and Butterfly Love, the first two are just kind of, you know, really noisy, uh, noisy guitar rock. But as you get into the earlier, I mean, um, the later stuff in the 90s, like, you know, uh, Tulip and uh, The Miracle of Sound and Motion, or even uh, their album, uh, Some Cocktail Suggestions, the EP. Okay. Um, they're, they're really, really interesting because... They kind of bridge, bridge the gap between Sonic Youth and um, noisier elements. But I, I don't know how to describe 
I mean, you, you just have to, to hear them to understand what I'm talking about, but they had a really distinct sound. And the, the only way I can, I can kind of uh, picture it is, it's just kind of like, they're almost like the soundtrack to a monster movie at a drive-in, where they, 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 they were just kind of, you know, creating their own kind of uh, extraterrestrial soundtrack to like some type of Japanese monster movie. And it's, it's kind of interesting. So how, how would they compare to, say, early White Zombie? And I'm talking pre-90s White Zombie. Um, they were kind of, you mean like the, the, the Soul Crusher... Make them die slowly, yeah, that kind yeah, of... Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, they were almost almost the same type of sludgy, sludgy, uh, riffy kind of sound. Okay. The, the early stuff, the first two albums, but then... You could see where there was something else too. There was a jazz influence, or there, there were there was more of a of a hyper hyperactive uh, a rhythm section that was just like uh, I don't know how to explain it. But well, you know what? Uh, when we're when we're done, you can throw up a couple of uh, videos yeah, from I'll, YouTube. I'll throw some tracks up on online, and you can listen. Um, and, and anyone else that is interested can uh, give this a listen. That would be the Facebook just, page that we're going to throw them up on. Right, right, and. The last time I saw Steel Pole play, actually, not the second to last time, they're actually opening for Faith No More on one of the last okay. tours that Faith No More did. And they were just phenomenal live. I mean, they, their drummer is just, their drummer, Darren, was one of the best drummers I've ever seen, like live on stage, bar none. I mean, you know, just incredible. Just incredible. Really, really tight. Just great band. Great band. GGTMC live for you, fresh air. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service, breaking films down and turning them around, giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit GGTMC.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Bringing class to the trash since 1977. So let's get into this topic here. Um, I think one way to kind of uh, look at the whole idea of the reunion theme and the idea of of punk rock and music and everything, um, before we get into that, I wanted to say, Eric... Did you happen to um, see the news articles on the exhibit that opened up at the uh, Museum of Modern Art this week? I did not see that. I missed that. Well, it's funny because they were opening up um, a whole wing of the Museum of Modern Art. It's um, a study of punk. Okay. And what was very interesting was the fact that uh, they built a replica model of uh, the bathroom the famous or infamous bathroom in CBGB's. Oh my God, that's horrible! And they built, yeah, they built a, a replica model, like a room, just like the bathroom in CBGB's, right? And, uh. <laughs> oh. and it was hilarious. The opening brought out such punk rock luminaries as Gwyneth Paltrow. You. Yeah, yeah, and all kinds of these uh, these Hollywood uh, debutantes, you know, like. And it was hilarious. Like they, um, I forget the the website, but they're getting all the quotes off the celebrities, and it's just like you know, tonight I feel punk because we're here for the punk ethos, you know, and all the, all this like, oh my 
god! Like it was just so hilarious, right? All right, so I have I have a story for you, real quick. So uh, you've seen the movie Dudes? Yeah. Of all right, punk rock western, one of my all time favorite films. Film I loved, changed my life. This past week on the uh, AV Club, which is the the new or the entertainment culture section of the Onion, but it's it's actual news. They did did a random roles with John Cryer, who starred in Dudes, and they talked to him about you know his TV work and you know Pretty in Pink. But they asked him about three films. They asked him about Morgan Stewart's Coming Home, Dudes, and Hiding Out, which are three films I like. And quite frankly, I own two of those on DVD. And the only reason I don't own the other one is because it's not out on DVD. But he talked about Morgan Stewart's Coming Home and some of the problems with that. But then he talked with. Just a little bit with, with what I thought was great affection about dudes, and he mentioned that of all of those of all of his films, that's the one that he has the poster of on the wall at his home. <laughs> and he was talking about how you know he wasn't really that into punk rock, but he had a certain amount of respect for it and interest, and that that a certain tell him like he had a lot of affection for it. And to me, he's the guy that would have gotten the going to the Museum of Modern Art and been like, not going. Along with a whole host of other, you know, Johnny Depp gets punk rock. You know, Woody Harrelson gets punk rock. Um, you know, there, there's a there's a whole list. Even Keanu Reeves, I think, gets punk rock. But Gwyneth Paltrow, yeah, no. And Chris Chris Brown gets punk rock. I mean, hey man, he walks around, you know, wearing an Amoebix jacket. I mean, a crusty punk jacket. You know, like, <laughs> you know, it, it's 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 not about the bathroom at CBGB's. It's about it's it's about a group of lost people or people without opportunities making a future for themselves or making a noise or letting the world know that they're there. I mean Well I was saying I was saying to, you know, Morris, I was saying that it was kind of interesting to me that all these people could come out and kind of, you know, laud CBGBs and, and kind of, you know, sit there and, and, and try to uh ruminate on, on a, an experience they never had, yep. but at the same time, they weren't around to actually help fund, you know, CBGBs to help, you know, pay for all the property taxes yep. and everything else. I mean, you know, like these people could have kept it alive and, you know, a lot of, a lot of people just weren't there. And I think it's, 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 you know, I said to Morris, I said, you know, when you keep something living, no one can be nostalgic about it, right? But, but in, in certain ways, people would rather kill something so that they can just kind of wax poetic about it and just say, you know, like, oh, it's too bad, and I remember this, and I remember that, and blah, 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 you know, when they'd rather be all maudlin and, you know, and, and they'd rather revel in the drama of it all than, than, than try to keep something alive and keep it going. I always say it's easier to wear the Ramones t-shirt than it is to listen to the album. Sure, absolutely. And it's, it's that that image and when I think about what these these who these people are all I can think is if it was 1977 they would have been coked out of their minds at Studio 54 I mean right. that's all there's to it well here's an interesting thing too is that you know like you say it's, it's easier to wear the shirt than to listen to the music but one of the things that really stunned me living in Korea is one day I was walking down the street and I happened to see a young Korean woman wearing a Ramon shirt. And I thought that was kind of odd. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing you know, I see another Korean woman 
and she's carrying uh, a burlap handbag and stitched on the side it says SST Tour Men and Man Meepop but it's angst you know and I'm just like what? and I, I it just struck me and I was like what the hell's going on? and then I see more and more of these young Korean women and men wearing Ramon shirts mm-hmm. and then suddenly it hits me that you know it's, they're not even looking at the music at all they like the design yeah that they have no idea it, there's no there's no musical relevance to it at all no it's become and, an image it's become a hey they, they right. sell that at the mall right well but here's the thing it, it's it's you know it's this idea that when artists create it they're you know it's not up you know, here's an argument is it up to the artist to maintain the image of how their art is interpreted. No, I don't think so. I think that that you create a piece of art, whatever it is, and you put it out into the culture. And even if you're horrified as to how the culture uses it, for example, Bruce Springsteen's song being referenced by Ronald Reagan, or right. uh, David Morrell's book Ram or First Blood being morphed into this jingoistic Rambo character. You know, even if that's not your original intent, the fact that there's something in it that resonates with the culture and they pick up on it, unless it's totally being used to to sell some kind of hate that you you just you just cannot accept. And and you know, going back to, to our topic of talking about uh, punk rock and falling apart and coming back together, you know, famously Sham sixty nine broke up because of how their their audience was taking their music. Jimmy Percy was not okay with it being co-opted by the right wing, and so he cut it off. Right. And I think that think that if go ahead. I was going to say you can look at the dead Kennedys too. Yes. You know that's a perfect example of that. You know, and the idea of the holiday in Cambodia. You know, the whole issue of you know uh, they were split over how. The music was going to be used, you know. Yeah, and I, you know, as when we talked before, we spoke about uh, how Iggy's song "Lust for Life" was, you know, took on this other cultural life and was used in commercials. And when Iggy was asked about it, he said, "I'm okay taking their money because the music was not conceived to sell that product. Rather, they came to me and wanted an existing piece of music that was 20 years old to try and sell their product." Right, right. Well, you know, it's funny, like, when you were talking about, you know, creating something and just putting it out in the world, it's like an interview that I I heard with Roger Waters, where they were asking him about, you know, well, how do you feel about the cultural influence or the significance of Pink Floyd? And he said, you know, that's not up to me to control. That's not up to me to have any say in it. It's like, it's like having a... a a dove or a pigeon in a cage. Mm-hmm. I just opened the cage and just let it go, and it, it flew wherever it flew. And you know, if you saw it, great. If you didn't see it, great. That's just you know, but it's not up to me. And you know, it's just like I'm just the uh, the architect. You know, I'm just the designer. But um, everybody else, however they take it, is however they take it. You know? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree, and think that when it comes to um, too many people, they want. They want the artist to give them the meaning or the context when the truth is the artist is saying, 
these are the ideas you form your meaning and you form your context and if it's something that's way out there and that is like I said something that, that's being used to an extreme that, that is detrimental to the core of what the artist believes I think they have a responsibility to say no this is not what we were about but other, other than that you know if uh, if they're going to use lust for life and train spotting great you know, if, if they're going to use it to sell Carnival Cruise, great. But, you know, if they're going to use it to sell, you know, human meat grinders in Southeast Asia, uh-uh. Or Monsanto, you know, it's like exactly. you know, exactly. life. Yeah, forget it. You know, I know exactly what you're saying. No, you know, it, it's interesting, too. Um, I think a lot of the theme of tonight's show was prompted by, we were talking about Black Flag, you know, and the the idea that this band now has suddenly become a hot issue again. Can I can I actually can, yeah, can I just interject real quick? I think it's interesting that are the two main things we're talking about are the Stooges and Black Flag, when they have a very symbiotic relationship in that the Stooges were to nineteen seventy two what Black Flag was to nineteen eighty two. Which is the Stooges were and they have been tagged as proto punk that their album, especially Raw Power, this is the blueprint for punk rock. What Black Flag was doing in their early years would become the blueprint for the second wave of punk rock in the United States, which is often referred to as hardcore. Yeah, and, definitely. And there's definitely parallels there. Most definitely parallels. Oh, for sure, for sure. But, um, no, I was just going to say that now, actually, the band known as Black Flag has become two bands. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, as Eric just mentioned, you know, they were kind of the progenitors of, of hardcore. But what happened was that, you know, the band went through so many lineup changes and went through so many singers and eventually morphed into something that was completely different when they finally broke up in 1986. That um, from the beginning, it was so completely different from, from where they had started. But what had happened now was that, you know, some of the the um, key players in Black Flag, well, Black Flag was centered around the guitar player Greg Ginn, and it was his band initially. Yeah, and he and he was the one that brought in the different singers. Uh, one being Keith Morris of the Circle Jerks, one being Ron Reyes. Um, there was, you know, like I mean, um, Des Kazenda, yeah. another singer. And what had happened now was that, you know. Because of uh, disputes and royalties, and you know, and um, conflicts between musicians and who owns which rights, and Gene owns almost all the rights to Black Flag. Um, the band has kind of splintered into two factions. You have Flag, which is you know um, Bill Stevenson. You've got uh, Des Cassenda. You've got Keith Morris. You know, um, and then you've got on the other end, you've got the official quote-unquote black flag, which is you know, Gene with Ron Reyes and um, a couple of other players. Mm-hmm. So the issue that comes up is that when when does a band or how does a band retain its sound or its integrity through so through being kind of you know. Um, not siphoned, but being filtered so many times through breakups and through lineup changes and through all these things, can a, you know, does a band or can a band retain its integrity? So, and also we should add that 
black flag, the official black flag, is has a new album coming out with new material. Right. And let me let me make one more observation about the Stooges versus Black Flag. The Stooges started out, and this is they were the psychedelic Stooges, and they were more of a chanty, Velvet Underground soundscapey band, and they retained that through their whole their whole initial career. But when they morphed into Iggy and the Stooges in the early '70s, they became much more of a focused punk rock in your face band that still had some of those those kind of velvet underground feel to them. Whereas well, I, think, I think if you listen to the track We Shall Fall Yeah, which is one of my favorites. Know, on, on the first one, you know, that's kinda of going back to what you're talking about. Yeah. But with Black Flag they started off as this this in your face punky, you know, three minutes in your out songs and later in their career became much more sludgy, soundscapey, heavy metal ish. So, which is, is the opposite of, of kind of the way the Stooges' evolution went. Right, right. Definitely. But but the, the Black Flag has, like we said, a new album. Now, I have not heard. Is Flag have new material, or are they just playing the classics? As far as I know, they're just playing the early material. Okay. They're playing the material. And I think because of rights, they're only playing the material that they've, they sang on, that those singers specifically saying on. See, my understanding of rights is that, that if they're performing them, that they're able to do... They're basically able to do that as a cover, but for them to record material or re-record material, that's when you would really get into publishing issues. Right. I think, you know, you'd really have to look at the ASCAP details of that. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but... Um, it's funny, too, how... You know, some bands have never got back together again, or or they they'll get back together as as close as they can. Yeah. Like for example, um, I think about a week ago, Revolver Magazine had their Golden Gods uh, medal, Golden Medal yes. Gods yeah. uh, uh, gathering in Los Angeles, and they had uh, Danzig play. Mm-hmm. And Danzig was playing with Doyle. Yeah, and, and this is something I was going to bring up. From the Misfits. Yes. And I watched it, and to tell you the truth, man, it was pretty embarrassing. Really? Yeah. On because, whose part? Um, just the whole thing in itself. Okay. I mean, it, was, it, it, it just seemed like, you know, Danzig was phoning it in, and it just seemed very kind of... You know, like, like I, we said earlier, the kind of Vegas shtick, you know, it mm-hmm. just seemed like it, it was kind of a, you know, well, a, a whole run-of-the-mill, just, you know, A to B, and that was it, and just, you know, follow the dots, and away we go. Let, let me let me, uh, let me me throw this out there, that I was, which I, what I was thinking about is, you have an instance where you have a band like The Misfits, classic, early <laughs> punk rock band, once again, a band that went through number number of lineup changes, and their sound evolved over time. Uh, the the band's singer was Danzig. He left when he broke up the band in 83 and continued on with the music career. The rest of the band members all went their separate ways. Uh, bass player uh, Jerry Only and guitarist his brother Doyle, they did a few projects together because they're brothers. And then in the mid-90s, Jerry Only reformed the Misfits with Doyle and a new singer and a new drummer. And they played around for a while, and I personally liked 
the new fits in the early days. I think their record was great. I saw them play live. They were solid. But they started shedding members again, including Doyle, and it had become a major embarrassment. And to me, the idea that Danzig, who kept going with his music career, would bring back one of his early bandmates and play a few of the old hits, that, that, that to me works. It's kind of like um, any artist who's been around for long enough you know, pulling one of their former bandmates up on stage and saying, you know what, we're going to rock out to our first hit or our, you know, the classic song that everybody cared about kind of a deal. And I, I'm wondering, is that more respectful than, than you know, doing the blatant cash-in, we're going to play the old records? I don't know. I mean, you know, again, it's this kind of thing where... Um, they're, they're the artists, you know, and, and they're... They're entitled to do whatever, yeah. whatever the hell they want to do with their their music, and I mean, you know, it's it's just um, again, and this this is not being kind of uh, hypocritical, going back to what I just said, but um, this idea that um, you know, it's whatever feels right to the artist. I mean, it's whatever makes the artist feel comfortable. And I know I just said that once the music goes out there, yeah, you know, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter what the artist thinks, you know, it's out there. But I, but I think that you know, in presenting your music, it, it's it's however you know, uh, however you feel comfortable like presenting it. You know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I know that there's a lot of artists out there who had a had a high point where they had a hit record or a hit song. And that they're they're out there on the oldies circuit, and you know they'll, they'll be like, okay, we're gonna play the hit, but we want to play you our new stuff. And they play the new songs, and people clap a little bit, and then they pull right. out the hit that the people want to hear. So right. I, I wonder if it's I don't know. It's it's a um, it's a moment of I, I guess if you're the artist and you just you're going out there for the paycheck and it's this is better than working at Walmart. I mean, I'm okay with that as long as you. I, I guess I have a problem with their phoning it in. That's what it really comes down to. If right. it's not there, and they they could care less, and they're thinking about you know getting on their BlackBerry and texting their kids or whatever rather than playing the music, then then I think it becomes a problem. But if if they're still invested in playing their music and still, you know, they want to revisit an old song every once in a while, or, you know, they're a band like uh, Cheap Trick who, you know, almost a decade ago now started doing this deal where they would play four nights in L.A. and each night they'd play one of their classic albums, and, you know, in a smallish venue, not a, not a huge venue, but, you know, for the for the diehard fans, I think that's fine, too. Right. No, it's, it's, it's interesting because, I mean... Um... I think it's all about perspective as well because, <coughs> excuse me, um, I just was reading um, an interview with uh, Grant Hart, the drummer for um, Husker Du, mm-hmm. and they were one of my favorite bands growing up, you know, in the 80s, and, you know, they met an eventual demise and they broke up and they never got back together again. And someone had asked Grant and said, well, you know, have you ever considered getting back together and doing one more tour as Husker do? And he said, you know, well, for everyone that loves us as artists and loves us as musicians, you know, why would they want us to kind of uh, feel 
unnecessary stress about having to get back together again and perform. You know, it's it's, it's just like, you know, why you know, if you really like us, then you like what we did. Let's let's just leave it at that. I mean, like you know, there there's there's people that want their favorite bands to get back together again, but then they don't consider the fact that you know. There's a lot of things that they don't know. There's a yeah. lot of you know things that they don't see. I mean, they're just they're just you know the listener, right? But then there's there's all kinds of other mitigating factors that you know you couldn't even begin to imagine. So I I, I kind of see it from his perspective where he's saying, look, you know, if you really like us, then just leave it alone, you know. Yeah. And I think you know, and some people could say that's a cop out, but then for others, you know. It is what it is, you know. I mean, like the Pixies, like for example, perfect example. Like uh, when you see that when they did the reunion and they actually did that film, concert film, it's like you know, backstage they wouldn't even say boo to each other. Yeah. But then they get on stage and they they do their thing, and then when it's done, they just go their separate ways and go home. You know. Yeah. Well, and, you and know, I, think, I don't I think, think they all need to be best friends or anything, but you'd like to think that. You know, playing in a band is, is part of being connected to a group. Right, there's and, camaraderie. There's exactly. camaraderie, yeah. And if, if and it, you know, that can evolve. Uh, you know, I remember seeing um, one of the members of the Go-Go's talking about how when she got off of heroin that, that she looked around and thought, you know, I, I'm not in touch with the other members of the band anymore and it's not a matter of we need to be best friends and, you know, we, we need to be chart-topping you know, hit makers, but these, these, she said, these girls were like my sisters. They were part of a, a very special part of my life. And I couldn't face being an adult and, and having children and not having them as part of my life. And I think there's something right. to that. And like I said, they don't need to be best friends, but you'd like to think that they can go back backstage after the show and everyone calm down and be like, Hey, that was good. You know, or you no, know, we need to work on that one or have at least some kind of engagement because they can't have that engagement before or after the performance. I don't see how they can really have it while they're doing the performance. Right. Well, I, I, th- I think what happens, too, is that you get this thing of this idea where some people get it, some people don't. The idea that um, music in itself trumps everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just like, you know, put your put your shit aside. Put your, your own personal, you know, ego aside it's it's the music you know and, and some people feel well i am the music i am the one that makes this music so it's about me and it's just like no it's about you know it's not about the parts it's the sum you know it, it, it's what is out there it, it, you know it, and and we've we've got into you know the discussion about you know the the kind of con inner inner conflicts in bands yeah. and how it, it, it's actually been responsible whether or not it has for for some great music you know and it's it's when those conflicts are are a, a healthy competition it's oh he wrote that song i'm going to come back with this song right you know and it's like it's like wh- why some of uh, the ramones songs written by dd are so good because he's like it's like you have johnny and joey kind of personality wise fighting each other and dd's the little brother trying to get heard so he's got to come out with something that's you know it's it, being challenged right 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 well Husker Du was the same way between Bob Mould and Grant Hart where yeah. you know initially they were just a band but eventually as their albums progressed you know 
Malt got his writing credits, and Grant got his writing credits, and then you know, uh, eventually the band collapsed because, um, and I think unfairly, um, there was a lot of accusation on you know uh, towards Grant Hardin his uh, addiction to heroin. Okay. But I think, but I think it was more than that. I think it was the fact that you know Bob Malt just really didn't want to share the spotlight anymore, and he felt that you know he had built up enough confidence or I guess enough experience to go off and venture on his own, you know? Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and I mean, no fault to Bob, but it's, it's just like, I feel like, you know, he kind of shortchanged the band after a while. He, he kind of unfairly used, um, narcotics as, as an out. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and this is something that, that comes up with other bands we've talked about. You know, we mentioned, um, the damned earlier. And you had Brian James leaving the Damned because it seemed like he wanted to be more in the spotlight, and he joined Lords of the New Church, which or the band that would become Lords of the New Church, which featured Stiff Baders and members of Sham Sixty Nine. And then they broke up, and they came back together. And famously, in the final Damnation uh, live show, which was supposed to be their final show, I think it's Captain Sensible that says, "Come back, Brian. Everything's forgiven." And it's kind of that whatever happened at whatever point happened and we you know maybe they realized that to be that band that they were they needed to be have all the pieces together mm-hmm. oh for sure I mean you know that's that's just it too is that you know when bands feel that they can continue without certain members and then when the members leave and then they realize that you know there's an integral part of the sound or something that's not quite right yeah they realize that that person was a linchpin in, in the whole machine you know, the, you know they were that one cog that made the wheels turn and, and that was just dead and now they're gone and what are you gonna do you know yeah you can't just like we, you start <laughs> off saying with uh, with Danzig and Doyle you can't it, as you know you can't just kick Jerry out of the equation as much as, as somebody might like to and same thing on Jerry's side you can't lose Doyle and Michael Graves or you can't lose Doyle and Danzig or even right. you can't lose Bobby Steele without without Bobby Steele it's not the early misfits no 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 and you know what's really funny too is that you know talking about Bobby Steele is he uh, he had his own band the undead oh yeah and you know it's funny because the undead had some great tracks yeah and it just goes and it just goes to show that you know like a lot of uh, a lot of people would say that you know um, oh you know yeah he he was just along for the ride or so and so was along for the ride you know mm-hmm. and um, but then when they break off and then they go and record their own stuff then you can see that yeah, they, they did bring they did bring things to the table, you know. Well, and, and a lot of times when people leave bands for better or worse, oftentimes they feel like they need to live up to that band, and so either either they completely blow it or they challenge themselves and they rise to the occasion. Well, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like you know, I think the most the most famous of those instances is probably Metallica with Dave Mustaine. Sure. sure, sure. You know, it broke his heart to be ejected from that band, and you know that's what drove him to to push Megadeth to become what they were. 
And then, you know, what happens too is, like, for example, there's uh, there's interesting situations where um, where people leave under, you know, tragic circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, uh, you look at the Minutemen. Yeah. They were, like, one of the most uh, beloved I wouldn't even call they were they were punk, but they were they were you know a unique animal under themselves. They, I mean, they were they part were, of that party punk that that was jazz. Yeah, yes. they were like a jazz punk political punk band that came out of you know the, the SST label in the early '80s. But they're uh, basically and going back to the Stooges. Everything ties to the Stooges. Oh, yeah. You know, um, Mike Watt, the bass player in the Minutemen. You know, now he's currently touring you know as a bass player for the Stooges but it was Mike Watt George Hurley and one D Boone and Dennis Boone the guitar player sadly he was killed in a tragic uh, tour bus accident well it was a van yeah in I think it was 85 or 86 somewhere around there and that was the end of the Minutemen and what happened was the fact that uh, Watt was lost because you know, in his own words, you know, Boone was his anchor. Yep. And and he was adrift. And I mean, you know, that was it. And then it actually took a fan, I mean, Ed Crawford, a fan of the Minutemen, to show up on, you know, Watt's doorstep and say, hey, man, I want to play with you. And Watt was like, no, I'm done. I'm out. I'm finished. I'm, you know, no, I'm out. I'm finished. That's it. And, you know, through perseverance and through a lot of nagging, Ed got Watt back into playing again, and eventually they formed a band called Firehose. Yep. And then Firehose had a great run for almost you know 15 years, for a long time, and they toured, and and, and it gave Watt his legs again to get back into it and, and to you know do so many great things. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that's an interesting case where where when somebody dies. How you can even come back from that? And, and let me just say at this point that you know, punk rock is, is as a part of the love or love that album listenerships. It's it's a part of you, part of our little world. But I, I've gotten the impression that a lot more singer songwriter orientation through a lot of the listeners, and that the Minutemen are very accessible. Their double nickels on the dime album is highly recommended. Along with the We Jam Akano documentary about the Minutemen, sure. and, and this, they're not a band to be afraid of. They're not going to be, they're not going to be loud, noisy. They're going to be different. They're going to be, you know, the accessibility level is different. But if if you're into the Bruce Springsteen or um, Elvis Costello, you know that that kind of um, of songwriting, you know these little stories. You know, the Minutemen definitely had that element, and they definitely had everything from, you know, jump up and down and pogo numbers to, to more country-ish numbers as well. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, they were they were really, you have a band here that was totally influenced, two of their biggest influences were, you know, like Creedence Clearwater yes. and Blue Oyster Cult. Yep. I mean, I mean, you know, their, their music was a lot of freeform jazz funk, but... This is an interesting thing too, and I mean, you know, not to go off on uh, on a different uh, angle here, but just the idea that you know today, when you say punk, everybody knows what it means and they have an idea 
But back in the early 80s, you know, in the 70s, when you said punk, punk, like, you look at all the bands that fell under the, the flag. I mean, you know, and I don't mean the black flag. Yep. I mean, you know, just the, the, the general, you know, parameters of punk. I mean, there was Blondie, there was the Go-Go's, there was Patti Smith, there was television, there was uh, suicide. suicide. You know, I mean, you had James Chance and the Contortions. You have, there was such a wide variety of music that fell under the punk banner it wasn't so derivative it wasn't so just aggressive and in your face there was energy of course but it wasn't as uh, kind of uh, channeled or it wasn't as pigeonholed as it's become today and it wasn't codified and and if anything it was as it basically meant weird Right, exactly, and I mean, like, you know, perfect example is SST Records, you know, the, the label that Greg Jean, the guitarist from Black Flag, started. There were bands like, you know, Minutemen, of course, but then you had the Meat Puppets, yep. which were, uh, you know, um, Chris and Kurt Kirkwood, and, uh, you know, the Derek Bostrom, their drummer, and there were a three-piece kind of uh, acid country punk band who just played these weird, almost like Grateful Dead punky tunes, weird weird kind of sing- signatures, you know, and they put out some amazing, amazing records. I mean, Up on the Sun is a classic. They're, you know, the one album that they've done that stands above everything, and, you know, and it's just this idea that back in the day, a lot of the music that came out was, it was original because a lot of it had never been established beforehand. Yeah, and I, I mean, sure, I, sure you had the 77... Yeah, the 77 era punk, but a lot of the music that came out of the 80s, they had heard it, but it wasn't a direct influence. It was, there was something new going on. Yeah, I think in the, in the 80s that there was a, definitely a heavy metal influence on a lot of the punk. But going back to SST Records, uh, if any of you remember my album that I love segment about the Divine Horsemen, they were also on SST Records. And they were, they were mixing kind of punk with country and singer-songwriter kind of stuff. But I, I think, and we were, we, were, we mentioned earlier that Black Flag was kind of the, the standard bearer for second wave punk, which is when I think you get the hardcore, which definitely had more of a Black Sabbath, uh, you know, Iron Maiden, new wave of British heavy metal kind of, kind of influence that made it heavier and more aggressive. Right. Yeah, they had they had a muddier as they they went on. They they had a muddier, more. Um, I guess what's funny is that they actually became the the progenitors of, of what you would call today modern stoner rock. Yeah, in a lot of ways, definitely. Yeah, and, and they, when they, they were the the first ones, like you know, in the late late eighties, well mid mid eighties, eighty six, before they broke up. Um, that a lot of the music that you and it was a lot of skate punk too. Oh yeah, because you know, like there there were bands that, I, and this is another band too that kind of gets overlooked from SST Records is uh, Saint Vitus. Yeah, and they were another band that actually got back together again with Wino Wino Weinrich, and and they were doing like seventies doom doom metal, like you know, like Sabbathy, think war page stuff. I said said think war pigs by Black Sabbath that or Planet Caravan that's that's oh yeah that was Saint Vitus totally but they they also came up in in the same time as Black Flag and they also were on the same label and it was very 
interesting how diverse they were compared to everybody else. But their influence, I think, really hit a lot of the punk too. Yeah. So I mean, like, like for example, that you can totally see where where Flag's sound in the end was was completely influenced by things like Saint Vitus, I think, and they even toured with them as well. So I mean, it's all there. Definitely, definitely, and they were into Hawkwind as well. And Hawkwind, uh, who I've also talked about in a segment, were a uh, they're going still going today, but they were mainly in the seventies a started off as like a proto metal punky band and then they morphed into a more electronic industrial space rock band. Sure. And that was sure. also a big black flag influence. Right. And you know, and it's funny too because I don't mean to backtrack again, but there there's another band that was hugely, hugely influenced by L S D. Yes, oh definitely. <laughs> and speed. Yeah. For sure. Well, that's the you know basically the name Motorhead came from Hawkwind for being a speed freak. That was you know, basically the lingo for uh, you know being on the whiz. Well, and and Lemmy was a member of, of uh, Hawkwind and wrote the song Motorhead for the band. Right. And right. when when he got kicked out is really when they started to become more of what we think of as Hawkwind space rock. Right. Or, where where. Apparently, the, the funny thing is, according to Lemmy, was that, you know, whereas all the other band members were into the downers, he was the only guy that was into the speed. He was the only guy that was into the uppers. So they, they really didn't vibe, whereas, you know, everybody else was coming down and trying to sleep. Lemmy was at your house at 4 a.m. trying to make a bologna sandwich, you know. Yep. Banging away on the bass. Right, right, right. For sure, for sure. So, um, this idea now, like you know, you were saying, you were saying that you wouldn't mind a, a Vegas, uh, a Vegas punk review. No, I, I, I wouldn't at all. And in fact, actually, there's a couple, not a re- Vegas style punk review as we were talking about, <laughs> but there is like a big, like three day festival featuring a lot of original punk bands that has been going on in Vegas over the last couple of years. Right. Well, you know, I, I think the thing is, too, is that, you know, I'll, it's, it's, it's interesting how, you know, there, there is a lot of, um, how can I say this, the, the parameters of music seem to, as time goes on, they seem to stay the same because, you know, like you look at, like, for example, like the 50s and 60s, how you had these doo-wop groups or these, mm-hmm. you know, uh, vocal groups, and some of them were like, you know, huge. Like, for example, like Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, you know, or um, you know the the uh, the Temptations or these these big bands. Yeah. But then there was those regional, the regional bands that were the, you know, the kind of everyone knew who they were in the area, but they never really could tour because their name wasn't as as renowned as yeah. the big ones, right? And I think that kind of parameter has continued to this day. With, you know, for example, like the punk rock genre where, you know, there's those bands that everybody knew because they toured up and down North America and all over the world for so many years. And then there's those bands that were those regional bands or the bands that, you know, could play one state or another state and yet, you know, 
they never got their kind of notoriety, you know. And Black and Fla- I, Black Flag was one of the bands that blazed that that trail around the country and, and around the world. And the uh, Henry Rollins book Get in the Van really chronicles that with his time as a member of Black Flag, and it's actually an excellent, excellent audiobook. Highly recommended. Right, right. Now, I was just thinking of, like, for example, uh, you know, there there were bands kind of like, you know, like Flipper out of San Francisco. Yeah. You know, or bands like Poison Idea, or, you know, or for example, or Your Neck of the Woods, Negative Approach. Definitely. I mean, these, you know, there were bands that were regional, and, you know, they were legendary, and even to this day... There's people that look at these bands and they're just like, yeah, man, like, you know, they were huge, huge influence, but they, they never got to kind of spread out, or they were never given the opportunity, or, you know, or, but for those that listen, they know who they are. Yeah, a couple of years back, my brother and I were invited to Rochester, New York, to be part of a, a reunion for the, the, the venue that their 1977 to about 86 era punk bands played called Scorgies and we're really good friends with the guys in the band New Math who we worked with and put out an album by but uh, we got to go to this reunion and there were all these people there that had been Scorgies fans back in the day and some people they hadn't seen in forever and a lot of the bands got together, together to play as best they could and a lot of these bands were known in that area in that area, that Buffalo, Rochester, maybe as far as Boston, but they, you know, their records got out there somewhat, and you'd find them in the bargain bin, or you'd find them in the collectible bin, because they were rare, and people knew what they were looking for, were looking for, but but I definitely saw the, you know, this was that group of people, and their time, and a lot of art students, and those kind of people, and that, you know, musically, they were all riffing off the Kinks, and the Ramones, and you know, Velvet Underground and Stooges and the Five and the, all of that stuff. But you're right; they would, they never, you know, they were never going to be big in Denver or never, you know, be well known in Austin or, you know, Miami because they just never got beyond those those borders. Whereas a Black Flag or a Dead Kennedys or a right. Misfits went out and toured. <clears throat> but but you know, it's funny, you know, in the days of the internet now and, and with vinyl and with you know musical fanatics everywhere it's very interesting how you know you really don't have an idea of how you know far your music or your craft can really go and yeah. the, the kind of uh, you know uh, profound effect that it can really have like for example um, I was in Tokyo Japan in 2008 and I flew over from Korea to go and see Killing Joke. And Killing Joke is an old British mainstay uh, classic uh, punk band. Like they, they started, you know, in the late 70s. And they've, they've been hugely influential to so many people. And they've always continued to play in various uh, incarnations. But the one thing that I... The reason I went to see them specifically in Japan was that it was the first time that the original lineup was touring after 25 years because their drummer, Big Paul Ferguson, was back in the fold, and they had their original bass player, Youth, after the death of their older bass player, Paul Raven. So the thing that really blew my mind was that, you know, I'm, I'm standing in this club, you know, in Shibuya. Um, the majority of 
the people in the club are probably under 30, 35. You know, mm-hmm. there's a small handful of us that were, you know, older people and uh, foreign, as well as older Japanese uh, folks. And as soon as Killing Joe came on, the entire club was singing word for word every single song. Yeah. And the band almost stopped, uh, you know, after they finished the song. And they were just looking at them like, what the fuck? Like, are you kidding me? Like, like you, you know, like you know this, and they're like, "Yeah, we know this." Like, you know, it, it was like this complete, despite of the culture, despite you know the age difference, the culture difference, it was like this total communion, like an understanding, yeah. and it was really spooky. It was really freaky because, and it wasn't like they were just kind of humming along, you know. And it, they were singing every single word to every song. And, you know, to the point of where the singer Jazz Coleman was just holding the mic out. Those, and it, it was just phenomenal. Those moments, and they get captured every once in a while from all kinds of bands. They're just magic. Do you remember oh, yeah. Do you remember the band The Verve Pipe from the 90s? The sure. Hit, the hit song The Freshman? Yeah. Which is a cheesy song, but I like it because <laughs> I was actually a student in Michigan State at the time that that song came out. And that's where they were from. The best version of that song I've ever heard was them live at Michigan State's auditorium with the audience singing the chorus. It just oh, it just yeah. gives you chills. And it doesn't matter. It almost doesn't matter what band you're talking about, as long as they're they're um, not some pre-manufactured crap, you know, or you know, not new kids on the block. Although that might work, but. When the audience is that engaged with, with the music and what's going on, that's what the magic is. So here's the question. Is, I mean, who really keeps it alive? Is it, is it the audience and the younger generations that keep it alive, or is it the artist that keeps it alive? I mean, obviously, if the artist isn't around to play the music, it's done. But, well, you know, that's... You know, that's is it, though? I mean, is, is, it, is it less... Uh, you know, any band out there covering Elvis or playing the Beatles song? I mean, can can that can you still get that connection with the artist via the song, even if it's not the original artist playing it? No, that's true. I mean, but you know, I, I was just talking about the live the live aspects okay. of it, about band, bands getting back together again. But, yeah, well, but you're, but you're right. I mean, because there was. Uh, did you ever see that documentary that came out a couple of years ago called Forever Young? I've not seen it. Oh, I've, I've heard of it, but I have not seen it. It was about it was about a, a music director in a senior's home yes, in yes. California, where he would basically get all these older folks to sing, you know, old songs like yeah. "Walk on the Wild Side," and, and they did a video for the Ramones. I want to be sedated, and it was hilarious. <laughs> and it just brought it into a new perspective yeah. where, you know, this old guy's just like, I want to be sedated. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that's going to be me, man, when I'm 90 years old, you know, and you know, and, and, and it's hilarious where, you know, and that, that's, it's, it's kind of a joke too, because I was thinking, you know, as a lot of these guys, like, holy shit, man, like, you know, Keith Morris, you know, was singing for a flag right now and, and his other band off, he's like 57 now, yeah. I think. And a lot of these guys are, you know, in the midst, in the middle of their 50s, right? So I'm thinking, you know, if you're going to write new songs and, you know, perform new material, I wonder where you're going to go now. It, it, it's like, you know, you know, it's like you could sing a song like, you know, Medicare, 
You know, it's it's. I'll, I'll never forget. I saw Al Jorgensen being interviewed in about 1991 at the first Lollapalooza, and he right. was for, Al Jorgensen from Ministry, and he was talking about country music, and he said, you know, those guys were the original punk rockers, and if you go back and you look at Elvis and Johnny and Waylon and you know Jerry Lee Lewis, they really were, and you oh, yeah. you look at the different paths that they took because. You get to be in your 60s or into your 70s, and you look at somebody like Johnny Cash, you know, where he was looking, you know, he went from singing about justice and what was right and what was wrong to singing about looking back at what he had experienced. And that's one direction you can take it, and that's why guys like John Doe from Axe and Chris D from The Divine Horsemen and The Flesh Eaters. Or Dave Alvin from the Blasters. That's one of the reasons to me that they went to the the Roots Rock or Alejandro Escovedo from the Nuns. And that's something we've talked about on this show before. Sure, like, absolutely. And, you know, there is that other side that is Danzig still out there singing Mother and, you know, We Are 138. Or, you know, Johnny Rotten getting up there and singing God Save the Queen, you know. Right. So, I mean, there's you get the you get those those kind of those two options. It's... You can keep on with what you were doing when you were 22, or you can can grow and move. And right. I, I don't know. I think maybe, to me at least, that there's more of a connection with someone like Alejandro Escovedo getting out and, and singing about, you know, um, singing about his kid, you know, or looking back at some of the things he's been through rather than trying to do, uh, you know, media control all over again, which is a nun song. Right. Well, you know, I, I think this idea of, you know, being being where you were at in the moment is important, you know. And I think it, it's just like how, you know, I think what happens is that a lot, a lot of uh, artists are kind of seen as kind of a joke in the sense that where, you know, the audience wants them to be what they were in the past, yeah. you know, and, and you, and it's almost like a circus, you know, where you've got to put on the grease paint, you've got to dress, you put on the devil lock like the misfits, yes. you know, and grease up your hair. You've got to go out and do that, but but at, at some point, it's just like you know, it, it, it becomes like vaudeville. It, it becomes like you know, it's just a, a routine. It, it's a shtick, and and I think for a lot of people, they can do that and they're happy doing that yeah. because that's you know that's what they're known for doing. But for others, they they feel like as they grow, you know, it, it, they kind of refine who they are and they and they they kind of you know state who they are you know in the moment. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's hilarious because I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up a name here that I don't know if has ever been brought up on uh, Love That Album, but uh, this will probably be the first and last time I mention this name. Uh, one Mister G.G. Allen. <laughs> Because uh, the reason I gotta mention oh. the old Gigi, uh, and for anybody who, who doesn't know Gigi Allen, all I can say is uh, go on to Google and don't do it at work. Yeah, don't. And, uh, don't don't do it at uh, don't do it in front of your children, but or your wife. Go on to Google or your wife, 
or any, anybody who's going to basically judge you afterwards. But go on to Google and type G.G. Allen, and yeah. you'll get a general idea that he was one of the most, uh, or if not the, the most disgusting, um, uh, raunchy, uh, vile... He did, he did jail time locally. He yeah. was on the streets of my hometown when I was in high school, and I had no idea about it. Yeah. Just like I had no idea about the Stooges coming from my hometown, and just like yeah. I had no idea that Black Flag and the Misfits both rolled through here on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, here, here was a guy who had a pension for basically, you know, singing on stage naked while breaking bottles over his head and sticking drumsticks up his arse and, you know... Pissing on the audience and pooing on, pooing on stage and basically eating it and throwing it at the crowd and you know basically just acting like a, a gorilla in the zoo. You know? All the and, all the awful things that they said punk rockers did, he did them. And there's no exaggeration by any stretch of the imagination that he was he was a vile, vile, vile human being. And yeah. uh, the reason I brought him up was that because. You know, this whole idea of what I was just talking about, about, you know, expectations yeah. of an artist. And, you know, we'll, we'll call him an artist, okay? Let, let's, let's just say... Yes, that. yes. Well, all the expectations of an artist is like, you know, how long can you maintain that? I mean, you know, Gigi Allen, he, he burned out when he was 36 years old. And I mean, you He know, threatened to kill himself on stage and he didn't carry through. no. But he, uh, but the last show that he did, he wound up, you know, going on the streets of New York City naked, and, you know, uh, causing a riot, stopping yep. a city bus, and you know, and he wound up dying of a heroin overdose, as uh, most of these uh, burnout musicians do. But the whole point of what it was was that I think he knew from the beginning that uh, there's no way he was he was going to be able to maintain that yep. lifestyle or that whole. Uh, stage presence. It, it was it was impossible. I mean, on a, physically, it had taken its toll on the man's body. He was literally insane. He was unhinged. But it's just you know, it, it's a perfect example of you know when you know you you kind of paint yourself into a corner, or you're, you're kind of known for a certain a certain you know uh, aesthetic, and then when you know you, you realize shit, what do I do now? Or how can I how can I keep this up? You know, you can't. And he, he let me let me just add that he wrote at least one classic punk rock song. Oh, his early stuff with the Jabbers is fantastic. Don't I mean, talk to me really, is amazing. Oh, sure, sure, the early early stuff that he did was great. I mean, the pop punk stuff he did was phenomenal. I mean, with his different incarnations yeah. of bands, but uh, but no, I mean, he just took the example of what I've been talking about to the umpteenth degree of where you know you can only keep something. Going for so long, and you know, or else you're done. You, know, you yeah. just drop, you know. And he he dropped. <laughs> yeah, you don't get much more extreme than that. No, and yeah, and you know, and that that's just it. It's it's, it's just that you know, uh, it's an interesting thing to where everyone always thought that you know the whole aesthetic of punk was total anarchy and chaos and. You know the middle finger against the establishment mm -hmm. and everything else, but I mean, when you like you say, when you take it as far as it can go in that regard, in terms of being so repugnant and obscene like that, it's just like what else? What else can you say? It, it's it, it's like you almost kind of nullify everything else, you know. And it, it, it's kind of like you know, there's only so many times you can say "fuck you, man," you know, and then it's like, okay, we got the fuck yep. you, man. Now what? Uh, what else? What else have you got to say? You know, what else can you do? 
okay? Like, and I think I think that's just it. It's, it's just that, you know, artists change, too. I mean, like, artists, like I say, like, they, they kind of, many artists live in the moment. Yeah. You know, when you see, like, for example, like a, a band like DOA, you know, an old Canadian punk rock institution, Joe Keatley, he has been playing for years and years and years, and he's just about to retire. Um, he got, he's getting into politics now, and he's actually becoming, uh, I think, one of the representatives in, in uh, British Columbia for the NDP. Good for him. But, but, but what's interesting is that in the earlier days of, of DOA, you know, they wrote a song, I don't care what you say, fuck you. Mm-hmm. But, but now when you talk to the guy, he'd be like, well, you know, that was us then. And, you know, we were kind of a little more caustic, and, you know, and he's not, he's not denying or he's not, you know, saying that we never wrote that song. Yeah. He's just saying, look, you know, that was me at 23 years old, you know, pissed off at the world. And now, you know, I'm a 56 year old man. Different story, you know. Yep. He grew up, basically. As, as... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's not like he's denying ownership of it. Man. It's just, it's just, you know, like the famous... Uh, he's not saying he didn't book. inhale. It's like the famous movie and book, That Was Then, This Is yeah. Now. You know, it's, it's, it's just, that's, that's the way it is, you know. And, and it's hilarious where <clears throat> you, you, you know, you have people still making assumptions about artists, you know, like... I remember, I thought it was hilarious where, you know, in a recent interview with uh, Angus Young from ACDC, and they got him backstage, and he's sitting there sipping a cup of tea before a show. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought it was hilarious where, you know, it's like everyone's kind of looking at this guy, and they're assuming, you know, he's backstage, you know, like snorting piles of cocaine and, you know, knocking back, you know, like six, you know like 40 ounces of Jack Daniels to be able to ramp himself up to go on the stage. Yeah, and uh, that's it, you know. So, but but he's not like that at all. The guy's very sedate. He's very, you know, uh, laid back before the show, and he gets out there and he goes off like a kid. Yep. Well, you you know, you only have so much energy, and as you get older, it, it waxes and it wanes, and you got to save it for the stage. I mean, right. Exactly. So uh, to wrap things up, I mean, I think we've talked a lot here about um, you know the different aspects of. of breaking up in the reunion scene and getting back together. But um, how about recommending a, a few albums to the listeners out there uh, to kind of give them an idea of some of the things we've been talking okay. about? Okay. Um, well, we talked about the Stooges, and basically I can say the first three albums. I mean, you, oh, yeah. but uh, Raw Power especially, I think, is, is worth <laughs> checking out. As far as the Misfits go, Static Age is the place to start. And I would say like Legacy and Brutality, too. That's, that's a fine record, but I think Static Age catches them right at the the, the the changing of the guard from their early kind of poppy, arty stuff to their hardcore years. Right. Uh, for Black Flag, I'm going to go with the first four years. You, you can't go wrong with, with the first four years. Um, who else did we talk about? Um, the Damned, either... Damn, damn, damned, or machine gun etiquette, definitely. Oh, yeah. definitely. Uh, Hawkwind, first four records, all worth checking out. Uh, so uh, the other bands we talked about that I I don't not familiar with their records enough to, to recommend. So you might want to talk about these were Saint Vitus, Killing Joke, 
Um, do you have recommendations for those? Yeah, I would say, well, St. Vitus. I mean, you know, all the earlier, all the early stuff, you know, like with uh, Weinrich. I mean, Scott Wino Weinrich was just an, an incredible. He's still playing too, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I'd say uh, there, just all the early St. Vitus records, you know, the SST records, um, Killing Joke, the first two albums, uh, the self-titled and What's This For. They were so instrumental to me, like so influential, the first two records, uh, and they were kind of a springboard for me to get into so many other uh, British uh, original punk bands. I mean, well, the art punk as a segment of uh, English music, like for example, bands like Gang of Four, uh, you know, bands like Wire, bands like Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, all of those bands really, I, I kind of got into all of that through Killing Joke. And, you know, because I just wanted to know if there was anything else out there that sounded like this, you know, like, and they were so unique, but there were other bands doing it. And I mean, I was familiar with Joy Division, but I thought that after Joy Division, you know, to me, the whole English kind of a new wave art punk had funny had kind of died on, yeah. but how wrong I was, I had no idea, you know. Uh, also, I wanted to go on about, you know, uh, Poison Idea. The early, yes. the early Poison Idea, you know, record collectors are pretentious assholes, kings of punk. Uh, the early Poison Idea is just phenomenal. Uh, negative Approach, um, the album's uh, releases on Touch and Go Records, those were phenomenal. Um, the early uh, EPs, Tied to the Tracks, mm-hmm. um, all of that. I mean, again, another band that was so influential on the East Coast. And, and you know, I mean, whereas hardcore, you know, like on the West Coast with Black Flag, it was just these direct, like, you know, two-minute punches to the throat. You know, negative approach was the same way. And, I mean, you know, of course, you know, you've got Minor Threat in D.C. that yeah. was doing the same thing, but it was a completely different experience. I mean, like, you know, negative approach was just so goddamn mean. And they were just so, like, you know just had this pit bull mentality where they just came out swinging and John Brennan just had the vo- the voice on him like no other. Tied Down and uh, Can't Tell No One are probably the quintessential hardcore punk songs. Oh, big, big, big time, big time. I mean, when I saw, we, we were talking earlier about Easy Action, you know, the band yeah. that John Brennan was fronting now. Um, when they played in Toronto, they played at a small bar in Lee's Palace and there was maybe a boat like, 10 or 12 people mm-hmm. there and uh, you know they played all the easy action stuff and then at the very end you know Brandon comes out and he says oh man there's not a lot of people here tonight you know I guess people don't know but can't tell no one boom and they go right into it and yep. it's just like oh yeah and the hair stand up in the back of my neck and I'm singing word for word and you know it, 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 it was like that deja vu, you know, it was like that, yeah, 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 this is still, it's still relevant, and he still had the voice, I mean, oh, yeah. that, that's that's the amazing thing, is that, you know, a lot of these artists, like you say, they get older, and their energy levels wax and wane, but with Brandon, man, the, Brandon the Cannon, I mean, he, he, he gets up there, and his throat just flexes like a goddamn bullfrog, and he did, he just lets it out, and he, and it fly, he flies, man. Like, it's just unbelievable. He, he's going to be the Iggy or the uh, Keith Richards of that generation of musicians. That's all there is to it. He's, he's outlived I, so many. Oh, 
Oh, I think so. I think so. And he, he's he's had quite a history too. Oh yeah, a rough history, you know. And and it, and it's just you know they're still standing, and it, it's a testament. It's a real testament. Anyway, um, I want to thank you, Eric. Uh, no problem. For, uh, being here with me tonight and uh, shooting. This is kind of an extended shoot in the shed. Yep. And I'd like to thank all the listeners uh, for uh, listening to us, Jaw Jacking, for the last couple of hours here. And uh, we encourage all of you to continue listening to Love That Album because we've got a lot of uh, exciting episodes coming up. And uh, Morris has uh, got a lot of sweet things uh, cooking in the kitchen, his musical kitchen, and he's ready to serve them up. Uh, Hot and delicious, as he always does, once he gets back from uh, recording with Brian. Uh, anyway, we're going to post some of uh, the tracks and the artists that we've been talking about tonight on the Facebook page. So for anyone that's curious and uh, anyone that has a penchant for listening to something a little with a little bit more punch than they're used to, uh, check out the Facebook page. And uh, maybe, hopefully, we'll give you something new to chew on. Yeah, just come on over and check out some of the, the YouTube clips and... Give some stuff a listen, and then also, if you have things we think you think we missed or that that fit into what we've been talking about, feel free to post those as well. Absolutely, absolutely, because I mean, I'm sure that there's people out there tonight that are kind of screaming that there's bands that we didn't touch yeah. on, or things that we totally overlooked, or you know, or maybe there's bands even in your own communities that uh, we might not be familiar with, but we highly uh, encourage you to post and uh, and to let us know because you know that's the beauty of all of this is the fact that you know not not to just wax on about you know the things that we are familiar with, but to also kind of uh, be exposed to the things that we're not, you know. Yep. Well, with that being said, uh, we'd uh, like to wish all a good night, and uh, thank you again for listening. And uh, oh, before we leave, I'd really love to thank Morris for giving us this opportunity here, and uh, for being able to host the show and just to be able to uh, to talk and uh, have a blast. Me too. It's uh, it's definitely a treat. All right. And with that said, good night. Good night. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.